Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! At the outset of 2022, conflicts, COVID-19, the effects of the climate crisis had already driven more than 190 million people into acute food insecurity. According to the World Food Program, President Putin's brutal war of aggression in Ukraine may add 70 million people on top of that, an already staggering number becoming even more staggering. As a person dies of hunger every four seconds, humanitarian group says global hunger is spiraling out of control, calling on world leaders at the United Nations General Assembly to take urgent action. We'll speak with Abby Maxman, president and CEO of Oxfam America, just back from Somaliland, where a famine may soon be declared. Then Adnan Syed has been freed from prison after spending 23 years behind bars. He was convicted of the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend. His case gained international attention when the podcast serial re-examined his conviction and raised new questions about his guilt. We're not yet declaring, not yet declaring Adnan Saeed is innocent, but we are declaring that in the interest of fairness and justice, he is entitled to a new trial. We'll speak with the first attorney to represent Adnan Syed. Then, half of full-time workers in the United States cannot make ends meet. We'll speak with heiress Abigail Disney about her new film, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. How many of you know somebody who works at Disney who slept in their car in the last oh. couple of years? How many of you know somebody who have gone without medical care because they can't afford it? The American dream teaches us that if you work hard enough, anything is possible. It's magical thinking. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russian President Vladimir Putin's announced a partial mobilization of Russia's reserve forces to fight in the nearly seven-month-old war in Ukraine. Putin spoke in a televised address earlier today. Only people currently in the military reserve will be drafted, prioritizing those who have served in the armed forces and have a particular military specialization and the corresponding experience. Before being sent to serve, those drafted will have mandatory additional training, relying on experience gained during the special military operation. The decree on partial mobilization has been signed. Russia's defense minister says 300,000 reserves will be called up to fight. This comes just a week after Ukraine waged its most successful counteroffensive of the war when it recaptured about 3,400 square miles of land. That's more land than Russia had captured over the past five months. During his speech, Putin appeared to threaten to use nuclear weapons if Russia's territorial integrity is threatened. 
тем, кто позволяет себе такие заявления в отношении России. I want to remind those who allow themselves such statements about Russia that our country also has a variety of weapons of destruction, and in some areas even more modern than those in NATO countries. And if the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will, without question, use all the means at our disposal to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff. Putin's speech came a day after Russia's lower house voted to approve a new law imposing harsher penalties on soldiers who desert or surrender during wartime. Meanwhile, authorities in four Russian-occupied areas of eastern Ukraine have announced plans to hold referenda beginning on Friday to decide if the areas should formally become part of Russia. Ukrainian officials have dismissed the plan votes as a sham. The referenda could lead to Russia annexing about 15 percent of Ukraine's territory. Tuesday marked the opening of the United Nations General Assembly. Many world leaders condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. There is no justification for Russia's war of occupation against Ukraine. President Putin is waging this war with one single objective, to seize Ukraine. Self-determination, political independence do not count for him. This is imperialism, plain and simple. The opening day of the U.N. General Assembly began with a dire warning from U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Our world is in peril and paralyzed. Geopolitical divides are undermining the work of the Security Council, undermining international law, undermining trust and people's faith in democratic institutions, undermining all forms of international cooperation. We cannot go on like this. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres also warned about the climate emergency and blasted fossil fuel companies. The fossil fuel industry is feasting on hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies and windfall profits, while households' budgets shrink and our planet burns. Excellencies, let's tell it like it is. Our world is addicted to fossil fuels, and it's time for an intervention. We need to hold fossil fuel companies and their enablers to account. Other speakers at the United Nations Tuesday included Colombia's newly elected president, Gustavo Petro. He called for an end to the war on drugs. From my wounded Latin America, I demand you to end the irrational war on drugs. To curb on drug consumption doesn't need wars, arms. It needs us all to build a better society. The Chilean president, Gabriel Boric, also spoke at the UN Tuesday. He called on the world to defend the human rights of Palestinians. We should not normalize the permanent human rights violations against the Palestinian people, applying the international law and resolutions that this assembly states year after year. The Palestinian people should yield to their inalienable right to establish their own free and sovereign state. In the same way, let's guarantee Israel's legitimate right to live within secure and internationally recognized borders. 
Demonstrators gathered near the United Nations Tuesday to protest the new Filipino president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who addressed the assembly for the first time Tuesday. Marcos Jr. is the son of the former Filipino dictator Ferdinand Marcos. Protesters were calling on the U.N. to investigate crimes by past President Rodrigo Duterte, as well as those committed during the Marcos dictatorship. Protesters held a large sign reading, Hold Marcos Duterte Accountable, No Fascist dynasties. Protests in Iran have spread to dozens of cities after a 22-year-old Kurdish woman died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. The woman, Masa Amini, died after being detained for wearing an improper hijab in violation of an Iranian law requiring women cover part of the head. Witnesses said Amini was severely beaten in a police van. She was later hospitalized in a coma and died on Friday. At least six people are believed to have been killed since protests began. Began. Video posted online show women burning their hijabs. Tuesday, the U.N. Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights called for an investigation into Masa Amini's death. There are reports that Ms. Amini was beaten on the head with a baton and her head was banged against the vehicle by so-called morality police. Authorities have stated that she died of natural causes. Acting High Commissioner for Human Rights Nadal Nashif has called for an investigation, a prompt, thorough, impartial investigation. One person is dying of hunger every four seconds. That's a warning from a coalition of humanitarian groups who say global hunger spiraling out of control. Oxfam, Save the Children and other groups say 345 million people are now experiencing acute hunger. That's double the number from 2019. Meanwhile, a new report finds there are now over 215,000 individuals worldwide who are worth more than $50 million. That's an increase of 46,000 people over the past year, this according to the Bank Credit Suisse. A group of Venezuelan asylum seekers have filed a class-action lawsuit against Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis and other officials after they were tricked into being flown to Martha's Vineyard, the island off of Massachusetts. The lawsuit accuses the officials of being engaged in a, quote, premeditated, fraudulent and illegal scheme, unquote, to advance their own personal, financial and political interests. Most of Puerto Rico remains without power three days after Hurricane Fiona pummeled the island. The majority of homes also do not have access to clean water. On Tuesday, the creator of the hit Broadway show Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda, called for more aid to Puerto Rico. He spoke at an event organized by the Clinton Global Initiative. We are looking for partners because we, we, we have to start recovery. The goal is to build. We're never going to stop hurricanes. And climate change, of course, I'm sure you've heard about in many different panels today, is, is not going away anytime soon. But we can build a more resilient Puerto Rico, uh, and we need your help to do that. So please email my dad. That's right. Email. Please email, at limanuel.com. Join us. Join us. Join us. Join us. <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda was on stage with Hillary Clinton. On Tuesday, Hurricane Fiona passed near the Turks and Caicos Islands. Earlier today, the hurricane strengthened into a Category 4 storm. It's now threatening Bermuda. 
In news from the occupied West Bank, at least one person died Tuesday in the city of Nablus in fighting between Palestinians and security forces with the Palestinian Authority. The unrest began after the Palestinian Authority detained two Palestinian fighters who were wanted by Israel. In news from Ethiopia, rebel forces in the Tigray region have accused the neighboring country of Eritrea of launching a full-scale offensive in Tigray. The news has not been independently confirmed, but aid workers in the region report heavy fighting along the Eritrean-Tigray border. Eritrea backed the Ethiopian government's initial offensive in Tigray that began in 2020, but last year Eritrea withdrew most of its forces. And in labor news, teachers in Seattle have approved a new three-year contract. Earlier this month, the teachers staged a five-day strike, delaying the opening of school. The new contract includes additional support staff in classrooms and pay raises. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. One person is dying of hunger every four seconds. That's the warning from a coalition of humanitarian groups who say global hunger is spiraling out of control. Oxfam, Save the Children, and other groups say 345 million people are now experiencing acute hunger, double the number from 2019. Humanitarian groups from 75 countries sent an open letter to world leaders and high-level diplomats gathering this week for the United Nations General Assembly here in New York City. This is the first U.N. General Assembly since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a key meeting Tuesday focused on how the war is contributing to skyrocketing levels of hunger. This is the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. At the outside of 2022, conflicts, COVID-19, the effects of the climate crisis had already driven more than 190 million people into acute food insecurity. According to the World Food Program, President Putin's brutal war of aggression in Ukraine may add 70 million people on top of that, an already staggering number becoming even more staggering. This comes as the United Nations is warning of a looming famine in Somalia, where a searing drought fueled by the climate crisis has withered crops, killed livestock, and left nearly 8 million people, or half of Somalia's population, in need of humanitarian assistance. The U.N. says millions more are at risk of hunger and famine across East Africa, including Kenya and Ethiopia. For more on the world hunger emergency, we're joined in New York by Abby Maxman, President President and CEO of Oxfam America. She recently returned from a trip to Somaliland, where a famine may be declared as early as October. Oxfam is one of the signatories to an open letter submitted by over 200 NGOs to world leaders this week, calling on them to take immediate action. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Abby Maxman. Can you start off by laying out the scope of the problem and what you're calling for? Thanks so much, Amy. Good to be with you. Uh, having just returned from Somaliland last week, uh, I'm able to connect what we're seeing on the, on the lived real lives of people and how they're affected and connect with them with those global numbers you already outlined. 345 million people are facing ex extreme hunger as a result of that confluence of climate, 
COVID and conflict. And that number in and of itself, 345 million people, more than the entire population of the United States in this in the 21st century. Now, we know that we have been talking calling the alarm for several years that we've used our early warning systems to uh, trigger, to show that have showed drought has continued to erode the lives and livelihoods of pastoralists and agro-pastoralist communities. Uh, someone I saw in, in Somaliland, the stories were very similar. A woman named Safia, mother of eight divorcee who had stayed in her community as long as she could over the past several years and ultimately went to a displaced persons camp near Barao called Durdur after she had lost 90% of her livestock. And hyenas were literally circling her family and her community as the livestock weakened. They had no choice but to, to, to move. What is so egregious about this is the, the cause of this is climate change. The increasing frequency and ferocity of intense climatic shocks droughts, floods, and heat waves that we're observing from Pakistan to Puerto Rico, and of course, off across East Africa, are evidenced in, in all of the news. But we know it's people like Sophia and the 74-year-old farmer who said this is the worst drought he has ever seen in his, his lifetime. They're down to one meal a day, and the world they need and deserve our help. And Abby Maxman, you mentioned uh, conflict as well. To what degree has the Russian invasion of Ukraine affected uh, uh, the uh, the food supply, especially to the global south? Uh, and also, to what degree, from your sense, is it the uh, corporations taking advantage of situations? So we, we see the uh, secretary general mentioning oil companies or energy companies uh, exploiting the current crisis. Uh, your sense of these two things, the, conf uh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and general uh, super profits uh, sought by some international companies. Yeah, Juan, thanks for pointing those two things out. Uh, yes, the war in Ukraine has exacerbated an already dire situation. The economic consequences of COVID and the climate crisis have su been supercharged by the war in Ukraine. Prices have gone up ex ex exorbitantly. And people in Somaliland, who I was talking to and seeing, were spending more than 90% 90% of their income on food just to survive. And they were using coping strategies down to one and two meals a day. Uh, that just is one anecdote of many about the impact, direct and indirect, of the global crisis and conflict and its impact on those in East Africa and Somaliland. Your point on fossil fuel profit and others uh, it can't be understated. It is extraordinary that as humanity faces this existential crisis of climate, that there is still more incentive by, by fossil fuel companies to destroy our planet and people than to save lives and to save the planet. Now, we know that the oil and gas industry has enjoyed staggering profits as they've wrought havoc on the planet. They've been amassing $2.8 billion a day. That's more than a trillion dollars a year over the last 50 years. And just let me contrast that against the fact that 18 days of fossil fuel companies' profit could cover the entire UN humanitarian appeal for 2022, which has been woefully underfunded. 
And you also mentioned uh, that uh, you were in Somaliland recently, particularly, uh, could you talk about the situation in Africa? Obviously, there are major conflicts still raging there, especially in Ethiopia. Your sense of the impact of those uh, regional conflicts uh, in terms of uh, hunger and, and poverty in Africa? Yeah, one. Well, well that, that confluence of those toxic three C's, COVID, climate, conflict, are just supercharging the situation. And those who are least responsible are suffering its worst impacts. So that, that we need to make sure we know that when humanitarian access is limited, that exacerbates people's lives and livelihoods and the ability to get basics of, of their human rights food, shelter, water, safety, protection. Uh, so that is def- part of the the cocktail, if you will, the toxic one, that people who are experiencing, people like the countless pastoralists who are facing existential crisis to their lives, livelihoods, and that of their ancestors. They have rights and dignity in crisis that we need to protect and support in crisis. And the international community has a responsibility and a moral duty to act. And this week in New York, around the UN General Assembly, we are calling on those empowered member states and policymakers to take action now. We need to do three big things. Save lives. And there's a number of of ways of doing that. Make sure we resource the humanitarian appeals and get the resources to people who need them, support local organizations, women-led organizations. Second, we need to build resilience. We cannot repeat this pattern of pulling resources to respond to crises that we know are coming. And we need to invest in both now. It's an investment in the future. It's an investment in protection. It's an investment in promoting lives and livelihoods and dignity. And third, we need to invest in that future beyond the resilience. We need to double climate adaptation funds. We need to make sure that special drawing rights are modified so that countries are relieved from debt and debt burden. And we need to fund nutrition and other fundamental issues that need to be supported at this time. Let me ask you about the growing inequality in the world and how this relates to the crisis of hunger around the world. According to a report just released by the investment bank Credit Suisse, uh, the number of ultra-high-net-worth individuals, um, UHNW people, also increased exponentially last year to a record 218,200. Can you comment on this extraordinary rise in wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, while hundreds of millions are dying from hunger and hunger-related causes? And how must this be addressed? It must be addressed. And I appreciate there's an acronym now, UHNW, though that's sad, a sad fact that 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 needs to to be called out. Uh, This is a failure in our economic system, a system that is broken and serving a privileged few. We it's it's not it's immoral. It's wrong. And there's an opportunity to fix it. It's not happening by chance. It's happening intentionally by those in power and political capture and those who are wreaking profits uh, to benefit themselves. There can be an opportunity to have a global wealth tax to ensure that fossil fuel companies' profits can be fairly uh, taxed so that Things like the UN humanitarian appeals, at a minimum, 
are funded. This is nobody suffers. This is a race to the bottom versus a race to the top. And the extreme inequality is is harmful to all of society and all of humanity. I it is very frustrating. It makes me very angry to hear that, oh, there are no resources. That's why we cannot save lives, build resilience and invest in the future. That is not accurate. In the 21st century, there are enough resources to ensure the integrity and dignity of people's lives and livelihoods in a more equal world. And there's an opportunity to end extreme inequality by changing this failing economic system. Well, Abby Maxman, we thank you so much for being with us, president and CEO of Oxfam America, recently returned from a trip to Somaliland where famine may be declared as early as October. Next up, Adnan Syed has been freed after spending 23 years behind bars. His case gained international attention when it was the subject of the podcast serial. We'll speak with the first attorney to represent him. Stay with us. of the birds. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We look now at the remarkable development this week in Baltimore, Maryland, when after 23 years in prison, Adnan Syed was released Monday when a Maryland judge vacated his murder conviction. The 41-year-old Adnan Syed had spent 23 years behind bars after being convicted of the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend, Heyman Lee. His case gained international attention when the award-winning podcast serial re-examined his conviction and raised new questions about his guilt. A Baltimore County Circuit court judge has ordered new DNA testing in the case, uh, tests that were not available at the time of Syed's conviction. He could still face a new trial, though that's unlikely. State's attorney for Baltimore, Marilyn Mosby, spoke on Monday. We're not yet declaring, not yet declaring Adnan Syed is innocent, but we are declaring that in the interest of fairness and justice, he is entitled to a new trial. The motion by Mosby's office came after the creation of a sentencing review unit in 2020. 
Those eligible to apply for review were juveniles who'd served at least 25 years in prison. Syed's lawyer, Erica Souter, sought a review by the unit, and Mosby's office agreed to fully re-examine his conviction. The review also stems from reforms to address corruption in the office by allowing the re-examination of trials, where, quote, new evidence has called into question the integrity of the conviction. When the sentencing unit reviewed Adnan's case, it found, quote, significant reliability issues with key evidence, including questionable cell phone location data used to link him to the murder. This week, Marilyn Mosby said she'll look into whether two alternative suspects may have murdered Heyman Lee, including one who threatened to make her disappear and kill her. But the evidence was not presented to the defense at the time of the trial. Adnan's case first gained international attention when the award-winning podcast Serial re-examined his conviction and raised new questions about his guilt. In a new episode of Serial released Tuesday, the host and co-creator, Sarah Koenig, described the evidence of the two potential suspects of Heyman Lee's murder that was not shown to Syed's defense team. It's called a Brady violation. The motion to vacate does not tell us a new story of the crime. It doesn't lay out an alternate theory of who killed Heyman Lee. Instead, the motion lays out how the system malfunctioned back then and how little we know now. The headline of the state's motion is that they've developed more evidence about two people who might have been involved in the crime, but whom they say weren't properly ruled out as suspects. They don't name these people. They just call them the suspect or the suspects because they say the investigation is ongoing. The motion explains. This Brady violation regarding one of the two alternate suspects the prosecutors are not naming. And the motion says they've also got other new information about these two suspects. One of them had a connection to the location where Heyman Lee's car was found after she disappeared. One or both of them have relevant criminal histories, mostly crimes committed after Adnan's trial, one of them for a series of sexual assaults. I know who these suspects are. One of them was investigated at the time, submitted to a couple of polygraphs. The other was investigated also, but not with much vigor, as far as I can tell. He's now in prison for sexual assault. But no one has charged either of these guys in connection with Heyman Lee's murder, so I'm not going to name them either. That's all the new information they found about the case. But, the motion continues, they also looked at the old information. And now they're saying they've lost faith in that, too. For more, we go to Baltimore, where we're joined by Douglas Colbert, who in 1999 was the first attorney representing Adnan Syed. He's a professor of law at University of Maryland School of Law. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Douglas. If you could start off, well, describe the scene in the courtroom, then outside, as Marilyn Mosby made the announcement, and Adnan Syed, your client uh, from more than 20 years ago, walked out kind of a free man. Thank you very much, Amy, for having me. And all I can say is that when we saw Adnan walking out of the courthouse, it was a feeling of being overwhelmed with joy. Uh, it was a sight that we could never be sure would ever happen. And it only took place because he had the perfect and ideal combination of the dedicated lawyer, Eric Souter, and before her, um, she had a, another just a brilliant lawyer. Um, uh, and then we had 
the prosecuting attorney, Marilyn Mosby, uh, who really embraced the meaning of a minister of justice. And finally, the judge understood that she was required to act in the interest of justice, and she did so. And she released him. The chains came off of him in the courtroom. There was a gasp, and people realized that he was going to be freed. And we waited outside uh, and waited, and then when he finally came out with his family, it was just uh, so moving and so emotional an experience. And Doug Colbert, I wanted to ask you about this issue of the Brady uh, law uh, violations. Uh, Over decades of covering uh, criminal trials, I've been often astounded by how often this occurs. And I think Erica Souter, uh, one of of, um, Syed's lawyers uh, and the director of the Innocence Project, also said that of some 3,000 people who have been exonerated uh, of of convictions across the country in 44 percent of the cases, nearly half uh, evidence was not disclosed at trial that could point to their innocence. And this is an example of prosecutors playing, uh, uh, pushing the achievement of a conviction over justice. And I'm, but rarely are prosecutors then uh, held accountable for what's in essence prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, wondering your thoughts about this issue of the Brady law violations. Well, it's a constitutional and ethical responsibility of every prosecutor to disclose evidence that tends to show that a person is innocent, the accused is innocent. Uh, And shamefully, one, Brady violations occur much too often, and those are only the ones that we learn about. Uh, and, And there are no consequences to prosecutors who fail to disclose. It's almost as though the disciplinary procedures don't apply to prosecutors uh, who fail to turn over evidence. In in Adnan's case, he served 23 and a half years uh, and had the defense lawyers had the information that other suspects were being investigated and that they could easily have been the actual killer. this whole tragedy would never have taken place. And it's a tragedy not only for Adnan and other, many other prisoners who are still in prison. He is not the only one by far. There are uh, many other people who are innocent of their crimes who should not have been convicted. But it's also a tragedy for Heyman Lee and her family that's had to suffer and, and now has to wait until the actual uh, killer is is found. If you could talk about the detective in the case, Ritt, um, who apparently in another case also was uh, found guilty of <clears throat> of misconduct. Uh, but it only took now the prosecutor's office reviewing that they found those handwritten notes about the other people that might have been responsible for the murder. I also think it's interesting well, that the prosecutor who reviewed all this is formerly a public defender. She had just come into the prosecutor's office, so had a very different perspective. 
And, and that prose, uh, the prosecutor, uh, Becky Feldman, who was in charge of the integrity unit, that unit only came about because we had a prosecutor, uh, Marilyn Mosby, who decided that was going to be one of the places where she was going to enhance the administration of justice. And Becky Feldman did an outstanding job. Uh, the report or the motion that she filed was thorough and it was verifiable information. Um, but, you know, w when we have a situation, you know, when we have to rely on uh, prosecutors uh, to do their job, uh, and then we have police officers like Detective Ritz and uh, McGinley, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but a second detective, you know, there is such a rush for judgment to try to clear cases, to try to uh, uh, find, a, get, obtain a conviction, uh, that the officers lose sight and the prosecutor lose sight of what justice means for an accused person. Doug, let uh, me, I want to go to a clip yeah. of Sarah Koenig again, again, this um, sure. serial podcast that broke open the story, albeit in 2014. She broke down the motion that vacated the conviction and described the role of this detective Ritz, the leading investigator in Heyman Lee's murder. At the end of the motion, Becky Fellman tacked on a, by the way, final section about one of the two main detectives on the case, Bill Ritz. He was accused of misconduct in another murder case that went to trial the same year Adnan did. In that case, Detective Ritz was accused of manipulating evidence, fabricating evidence, not disclosing exculpatory evidence, not following up on evidence that had pointed to a different suspect. In 2016, the guy convicted in that case was exonerated. Ritz was one of the two detectives who repeatedly interviewed Jay Wiles. So if you can take it from there, Jay Wiles, the uh, key prosecution witness who's changed his story over and over, and then the prosecution saying to the jury, recognizing he was unreliable, don't worry, the cell phone pinging information backs up what he says. Doug Colbert. Amy, I was present at the first trial, which people are not speaking about uh, these days. But the first trial uh, resulted in a mistrial, a, hung, uh, a, a case in which the judge interrupted the trial. And I was speaking to the jurors as they left the courtroom. And I had sat through Jay Wilde's testimony, and he gave different versions of what happened at key uh, points of the testimony at four or five different times he contradicted himself. Now, if you get that once in a trial, that becomes your reasonable doubt for a jury to acquit the defendant. But this individual witness was so ineffective. It was a pitiful performance. And yet, when he had a second chance, because the judge declared a mistrial, that then allowed the prosecution to, quote, unquote, clean up the witness's testimony. I wasn't there for the second trial. But I can tell you, when I asked the jurors coming out of the courtroom, you know, what did they think of the prosecution's case? The four or five that I spoke to in unison said, what case? And when I asked them, how would they have returned a verdict, guilty or not guilty, once again, it was a resounding not guilty. So it was so disappointing to have lost that jury in that trial. 
but Jay Wilde was somebody who uh, was a suspect himself for quite a while. Um, and just getting back to Detective Ritz, I just want to point out, Amy, that on the day that Adnan was arrested, um, his co-counsel, Chris Floor, and I went over to the police precinct. It was a rainy evening on a Saturday night, and we tried to gain entry so we could speak to our client, and they would not allow us inside. So we were not able to even give our client advice during the interrogation. But at no time did Adnan make any you know, incriminating statement. He always maintained his innocence, and he has maintained his innocence to this day. Doug, we just have 10 seconds. What happens next? Do you expect a new trial will be called? I mean, he's wearing an ankle bracelet. Is that right? How free is he? Yeah, well, he has to wear the ankle bracelet, but he's with his family, and, and, and that's the biggest thing right now. We can see him. He can see us. He has to wear the ankle bracelet at least for the next 30 days. And what's going to happen is that Miss Mosby's going to wait until she gets the forensics back to see if the DNA shows anything. And if it doesn't, I expect that she will dismiss the charge, end this, uh, this nightmare for Adnan and his family. Doug Colbert, we want to thank you very much for being with us, uh, professor of law at the University of Maryland School of Law, the first attorney to represent Adnan Syed. That was in 1999. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you. Coming up, a new film is out. It's the heiress Abigail Disney's uh, film about her own family, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. Stay with us. As we go marching, marching, we battle to for men, for they are women's children, and we marry them again. Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Judy Collins singing Bread and Roses. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show looking at how half of full-time workers in the United States cannot make ends meet. Thousands work for the Walt Disney Company. One of them reached out to the dissident heiress, Abigail Disney, whose grandfather, Roy Disney, built what's often called the happiest place on earth. Now, she's made a documentary about how the family business exploits its workers. It's called The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. This is the trailer. Disneyland was not like anywhere else on Earth. When I started working at the park, the employees were so happy to be there. The company appreciated you. At least it did. Having the last name Disney is like having a weird superpower you didn't ask for. 
But then one day, I got a message from a guy named Ralph who worked at Disneyland. How many of you know somebody who works at Disney who slept in their car in the last couple of years? How many of you know somebody who have gone without medical care because they can't afford it? (laughs) The American dream teaches us that if you work hard enough, anything is possible. It's magical thinking. Dr. Disney. Disney could raise the salaries of all of its workers to a living wage. It was possible to do this when my great uncle and grandfather built the company. It's possible now. That is socialism. We know what that is. The people who do the pixie dust tonight, we scrub the kitchens, the floor, the toilets. With both of us working full time, we still fall below poverty level. A custodian would have to work for 2,000 years to make what Bob Iger makes in one. The Disney company is ground zero of the widening inequality in America. You know, I think of it as the assholification of America. This isn't just a Disney story. It's the story of nearly half of American workers who can't make ends meet. I have this passion growing within me now, building power for working class people like me. If you could tell Disney anything, what would you tell them? We'd like to be able to have a home. In the American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, we meet a number of Disney workers, including a couple named Ralph and Trina, who work overnight shifts to support their three young children. They earn $15 an hour, plus an extra 75 cents an hour for working overnight. You guys met at Disney? Yes. Yes. He saw me in the parking lot and I said, do you want to eat inside the park or outside the park? He said inside the park. And we've been together ever since. So it was an inside the park home run. Pretty much. Pretty much. Go, Kenzie. Do you see your daughter? Go. At the time when we first met, I had this idea that we would move out and have our family and everything. Unfortunately, the economy does not allow that. We live with my mother-in-law. We're lucky enough to do that. I've always wanted to have a house of my own. Always dreamed of one. But I would settle even to have an apartment. It would be nice to just have it where I can show my kids that I can do things on my own and not have to rely on my parents. You want mommy to come down with you? Even with both of us working full time, we still fall below poverty level. We try to do as much as we can that doesn't require any kind of money. We make $15 an hour. And for people who work at night, we only get 75 cents an hour extra. But for working the hours we work with the lack of sleep, I don't think 75 cents is enough. Third shift starts at 11.30 to about 8 o'clock in the morning. 
It's very physical work. Where the people who do the pixie dust at night, you scrub the kitchens, the floor, the toilets. And I'm proud of what I do. I'm very proud of it. And that type of thing you'll find throughout all the parks. The people who tend to work there want to provide the best. For more, we're joined by Abigail Disney and Kathleen Hughes, who co-produced and directed The American Dream and other fairy tales. Abby is the granddaughter of Walt Disney Company co-founder Roy Disney. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Abigail Disney, take us on your journey. You are not just a director and a producer, of course. You are also the um, person who is exposing what's going on in Disney, along with the workers. Um, talk about what made you make this film. Well, you know, I've cared for a really long time about income inequality and uh, various ways in which this country has really not treated its workers well. So I got a message directly um, from someone who worked in the park, Ralph, who we just met. And, um, you know, I had cared in the abstract for a really long time. I actually had not really let myself look at the company itself. Um, but, you know, the call was coming from inside the house. I couldn't pretend it had nothing to do with me anymore. Once Ralph reached out to me, it became very personal, and I had to get started on something. Can't hear you. Ah, um, we've just—Juan's just lost the feed. So, uh, Abigail, oh, okay. talk about going out uh, to, um, to California. I want to play a clip from The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, in which we see you meeting with the Disney workers who make $15 an hour. By a show of hands, how many of you have someone you know that works at Disney that's on food stamps? Wow. How many of you know somebody who works at Disney who's slept in their car in the last oh. couple of years? How many of you know somebody who have gone without medical care oh. because they can't afford it? <laughs> How many of you all have children? I am somebody who doesn't have kids. I don't have the finances to take care of a child in the way that I would like to. It's affected my ability to family plan and to look towards my future as far as my personal life. And it's not, you know, this is not where I thought I'd be at 33. You can borrow our kids. <laughs> A clip from the American Dream and other fairy tales. One. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, Kathleen Hughes, uh, not only are, are the workers at Disney so uh, badly paid, but you uh, documented an astounding amount of uh, local government subsidies uh, by Anaheim in uh, in Disneyland and, uh, and uh, likewise, the state of Florida and Orlando also have provided subsidies. Could you talk about your surprise at these uh, enormous uh, subsidies, given the fact that you know, the, the average price per person at Disney World or Disneyland is over $100 per uh, for a family of, of five. That would be $500 just to get in. We're not talking about the parking Absolutely. and the food and everything yeah, else. No, you're right. Spent, I mean, people spent. people stay for years to take their family on this very, very expensive adventure at Disney World and Disneyland. 
Um, but, you know, Disney is a big American corporation. And like so many corporations, it spreads, well, it spreads its money around into all levels of government. And um, it does that in order to get tax breaks, subsidies, and the, and the rest of it. They, they kind of, you know, they, I mean, I, you know, all of us have heard about how there's so much money in politics, and, and, and this is why these companies spend all that money. So in Anaheim, in particular, we found out, and so we kind of know all that, but what we found out was that over the, a period of about two decades, Disney received a billion dollars in tax breaks and subsidies from the city of Anaheim alone. Um, and that's just part of their—the um, way they've kind of managed to manipulate the system in their favor. So it's pretty and Abigail, Abigail Disney, did you talk about the response of the Disney company? Were you, were you able to get them uh, uh, on record to talk about uh, their practices? We we reached out to them for comments, and primarily they focused on the employee issue, and they pushed back on us and said, employees are everything, and we love them, and we do everything right. I, I mean, I, you know, you can watch the film and judge for yourself about how the employees are feeling about the way they're being treated. Disney does something that's rather—the rather, um, usual um, in terms of corporations. They'll offer more of a lot of things that aren't money— um, and and time, and the two things that are under most pressure that people are most under pressure around is their money and their time. So they'll offer you a free college education, but in very limited forms. There's health care, but you have to pay into it, and many people can't afford to pay into it. You know, it's it's really quite rough, and and the company can say all it likes uh, about how well people are treated. We've seen it with our own eyes. People are really struggling to put enough food on the table. Abigail, you are Disney's worst nightmare, clearly. This is the film yes, they I don't am. want people to see. You testified before Congress and learned that Disney had lobbied for you not be, to be able to speak. The Republicans tried to stop the hearing before you even opened your mouth. Talk about your writing to Bob Iger and then, as you call it, the Bobs, Chapek as well. Yeah, so I, I did. When I when I first met Ralph, I went there quietly. I had no intention of making a film. I went by myself. My daughter came with me. We sat in that circle, but without cameras, and heard everything that everybody had to say. And I was so um, enraged, really. Uh, and, and I came home, and I really thought about it hard, and I sat down and labored over a very long email to Bob Iger, because I wanted to lay it out for him, because it wasn't just a question of the hourly pay. It was the pressure on productivity and the disrespect and the, the stripping of perks and all that has gone on. But it's, it's, it, the, un, the main underlying principle there is that people are not seen as people anymore. They're just replaceable parts of a machine. And so the overall impression I had was of a company that had just utterly changed in terms of how it understood those partners that it has in the parks. And so I wrote that long, long email to him long before I started the film. And the answer I got back was very unsatisfying and very short. And um, I followed up with the head of HR, which is what he suggested I do. And she was a very nice lady. Um, but, you know, we weren't speaking on the same wavelength at all. Um, 
it, it, it's, that is the last I've directly communicated with anybody there. The letter at the end of the film is really more of an open letter that I, the, that I wrote for the end of the film. And so they get to get it in the same form everybody else gets to get it, which is on film. Um, I don't have any, uh, sense that they're, you know, hankering to reach out to me. They would really rather I just stay quiet. But this doesn't feel like, um, this doesn't feel like something that asks me to stay quiet. And on top of it, we're talking about corporations in general. This is not just Disney. And it feels especially bad because we're talking about Disney, because the affection people have for that company, it really felt like an incredibly important thing to make sure that people understood that this is a phenomenon that's happening across this country in corporations and even in around the world. You know, the workers we profiled all love Disney. They yeah. love the company. And part of the reason they wanted to participate in the film was they had a hope that if they could change Disney from within, Disney could lead the way for other corporations. It's somewhat idealistic, but it, but it's the case. And it could be true if they, they could lead the way. And Abigail Disney, I wanted to ask you about Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's effort to dismantle Disney World's quasi-independent Reedy Creek District and also about Disney's response to his Don't Say Gay bill. You, you penned a, uh, an op-ed piece in The Washington Post uh, earlier this year on it. Yeah. And, you know, what's going on there is is very nefarious as far as I'm concerned. I Look, Reedy Creek is not exactly the most democratic institution that, that we've ever heard of. It was an invention of my grandfather's in the early 1970s as a way of, you know, making financial sense out of all the needs for all the land they had down there in Florida. If I had my druthers, they would have that kind of special status. But what Ron DeSantis said was, I'm going to take away this special status, not because it's unfair, but because you've disagreed with me politically. And that is a frightening and, frankly, fascistic approach to enforcing law. Uh, he And it was a message. It was a message to every other company that does business in Florida, because he said, I'm going to go after the most powerful company here in this state. I'm going to make a statement, and I bet you not one other company is ever going to cross me again. And that's exactly how it's worked out. If you look at at what's happened in, in the aftermath, there's been total silence on the subject on both sides. Um, and that's because I'm sure they're, they're locked away in, in a dark room somewhere working it through. Um, because they're really on the same page. Disney wants to make money, and DeSantis wants them to be quiet. So, uh, Kathleen, uh, Bob Iger became a billionaire at the beginning of the pandemic as so many workers were losing their jobs. We have 15 seconds. Right. Your final thoughts? It's immoral. <laughs> I mean, it's just the system has gone haywire, and and it, we, we should not have people making that kind of money while his own employees— are going to food pantries to support, to feed their children. Abigail Disney and Kathleen Hughes co-produced and directed The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. It'll be in theaters across the country on Friday. Abby's the granddaughter of Walt Disney Company co-founder Roy Disney. Here in New York, it's premiering at the 
opening of uh, DCTV's Cinema for Documentary Film. And yesterday, I was at the firehouse for the for the ribbon cutting. Congratulations, Abby Disney was there. Um, you were um, using those scissors with John Alpert and Keiko Tsuno. It was a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful event. Um, and that film will be the first documentary to air there on Friday night, again, as well as across the country. Oh, a very happy birthday to Jackie Sam. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for an associate digital editor as well as a people and culture manager. Go to democracynow.org for more information. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.